This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This episode number 60, entitled, What Does Son of God Mean in Luke? Part 3 of 3. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that has its aim to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. I am your host. In our last two episodes, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Luke to see how he defines Jesus with the title Son of God. Thus far, we have observed that Son of God, for Luke, is a title referring to the anointed king, God's Messiah, with occasional echoes of Adam as the initial Son of God and Israel as a nation which is also called Son of God. There is no indication thus far in our study that Son of God is a title for divinity or for a member within the Godhead. In this final episode of Luke's Gospel, we will look at the remaining references to Jesus as Son of God. How will Jesus' exchanges with the demons unpack what Son of God means? What about Luke's version of the Transfiguration? Does this vision reveal Jesus to be God in the flesh? Or what about Jesus' intimate knowledge of the Father? What does that say about the Son of God? Lastly, we will look at Jesus on trial with both the Jewish authorities and also with the Roman governor Pilate to see how Jesus' identity leads to his execution. There's a lot of material to cover, so let's just dig right in, shall we? Our first point today is called, Son of God Confessed by the Demons. I'm going to read a passage here out of Luke chapter 4. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. That's Luke chapter 4, verses 40 through 41. While it's difficult to discern the difference, Luke helpfully distinguishes, in the Greek text, the demonized humans from the demons. In other words, Luke makes it absolutely clear that it is the demons that are speaking to Jesus and not the possessed people that are speaking. This is important because we're seeing that's not the human beings that are actually making this confession of Jesus. It's actually the demons inside the human beings that are making this intelligent confession of Jesus. The demons in this passage identified Jesus as the Son of God. The very title Jesus was recently tempted with earlier in chapter 4 in his temptations in the wilderness with the devil. Luke helpfully identifies why Jesus does not allow the demons to speak at the end of verse 41. Luke says, quote, because they knew him to be the Christ, end quote. So, for the demons, Son of God referred to the Christ, namely the anointed king of the kingdom. There is no indication from the confession of the demons that Son of God referred to God himself or to some pre-existent being. He is the anointed one, the anointed king. 
There's another reference to Jesus dialoguing with the demons in Luke chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 28. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. That's Luke chapter 8, verses 28 through 31. Another interesting passage where Jesus dialogues with an unclean spirit, which we learn is one of many demons inside this man. This particular unclean spirit identifies Jesus as the Son of the Most High God, but initially with his human name, calling him Jesus. The demon thus addresses and recognizes Jesus primarily on human terms with this human given name, Jesus, not with some supposed remembrance of Jesus as a pre-existent being formerly acquainted with the demon. Jesus, of course, here is described as the son of the Most High God, thus distinguishing Jesus from the Most High God, while at the same time placing Jesus in a special relationship to this God as the Son of God. How is this title understood in this particular episode? Well, we get three different pieces of data. The first thing that we see is that the demon admits that Jesus possessed the power and authority to torment the demon and potentially drive him out into the abyss. The second thing we learn is that Jesus is able to authoritatively command the demon to come out of the man. And thirdly, we see that Jesus has to ask the demon, what is your name? Demonstrating some ignorance to this particular piece of information, despite the fact that the demon knows Jesus' name. So Jesus doesn't know the demon's name, but the demon knows Jesus' name. So, what does it mean that the demon identifies Jesus as Son of God, or Son of the Most High God, in this episode? It means that Jesus is a human being, because Jesus is his human given name. Jesus is someone who is not omniscient, but he is someone that possesses the power and authority over the demonic world. This fits with the picture Luke has painted thus far in his gospel. Jesus was anointed with the empowering spirit of God at his baptism, identifying him as the messianic son of God. Jesus' miracles only occur after he is baptized with the spirit at his baptism, not before. So it is safe to say that his authority to exercise and command the demons is due to his empowerment of the Spirit of God, namely, the Spirit of the Most High God. Jesus acts as a highly empowered human being in this episode rather than an omniscient deity who doesn't even know the name of the demon with which he is speaking. This episode is consistent with a high human Christology. Let's move on to our second point. Our second point is called Son of God Announced at the Transfiguration. 
So we'll look at Luke's version of the Transfiguration, which is in Luke chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were walking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That's Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 35. There's a lot that can be said in regard to Luke's version of the Transfiguration. For one, Luke redacts the figure appearing in Matthew and Mark about the six-day waiting period before the event to what Luke writes as eight days of a waiting period. This has confused many interpreters, but Luke seems to have a powerful theological reason for introducing the theme of eight days. In the Jewish tradition, the firstborn sons were to be dedicated to God on the eighth day, principally with their circumcision. Exodus chapter 13 verses 12 through 16 explains that the dedication of these firstborn sons among the children of Israel was to serve as a reminder that God had rescued his people out of Egypt in a powerful exodus. The account of the transfiguration by Luke continues many of these very themes, especially the themes of Israel as son of God, the exodus, of course, led by Moses, and the mighty act of redemption. So let's see how this hypothesis holds up with what Luke says about the transfiguration. The three inner circle disciples, Peter, James, and John, accompany Jesus to the mountain where Jesus' face and clothes begin to shine. This echoes the account of Moses being on the mountain, whose descent revealed his interaction with God to cause Moses' face to shine in glory. We see this in Exodus chapter 34. In fact, Moses is one of the persons accompanying Jesus in this vision, as recorded by Luke, thus further strengthening the Moses illusions. Both Moses and Elijah are described as, quote, appearing in glory, end quote, in verse 31. The three disciples, according to verse 32, quote, saw his glory and the two men standing with him, end quote. This serves to associate Jesus with the two other glorified human beings, rather than to distinguish Jesus from this category. Jesus is thus mentioned alongside the glorified human Moses and the glorified human Elijah, so it seems to presume that Jesus is also a glorified human being. Luke goes on and actually uses the Greek word exodos, 
translated in my translation as departure in verse 31, thus strengthening the connection with the former exodus by Moses. In other words, Moses introduces the first exodus and redemption of the people of God, and Jesus now going to introduce a new exodus, the redemption of the people of God. This exodus slash departure, according to verse 31, was something Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, the transfiguration episode is looking forward in the life of Jesus towards the climax in Jerusalem rather than looking backwards at some sort of pre-existent glorified state of being. The voice from heaven, which clearly is meant to recall the same voice at the baptism of Jesus that announced Jesus' messianic status, appears again here in Luke's version of the transfiguration. This voice states that Jesus is my son, my chosen one. So we have another confirmation from God in heaven that Jesus is son of God. But what about this additional language of Jesus being the chosen or the elect one of God? Although there does not seem to be an exact messianic reference in the Old Testament for the Messiah to be the elect one or the chosen one, there are a few other persuasive options on the table. First, David was chosen by Samuel from among the other sons of Jesse. David was the chosen slash elect one to be the anointed king of God's kingdom. So, there may be an allusion to David, the chosen anointed king, in God's announcement that Jesus is the elect son of God. This might mean that Jesus is the chosen son of God, just like David was the former chosen anointed king. Another option would be to consider the nation of Israel as God's elect and chosen people. The book of Deuteronomy repeatedly describes God's election of Israel, and we have already noted that Luke has made the connection with Jesus as a representative figure with the nation of Israel, otherwise known as the Son of God, in Luke chapter 4, in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness with the devil. This fits well with our hypothesis that the eight-day reference recalls the children of Israel dedicating their firstborn sons to God. It is a safe bet to postulate that Luke's version of the transfiguration identified Jesus, the Son of God, as a representative figure for Israel, a glorified human being like Moses and Elijah, and a royal figure like David, the chosen anointed king. There's no indication in this episode of the transfiguration that Son of God refers to one who is ontologically divine or as a pre-existent being from heaven. Thus far, Luke's depiction of Jesus as Son of God is consistent with a highly empowered human being. Our third point today is looking at Son of God uniquely known by the Father. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 22, we read Jesus saying, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That's Luke chapter 10 and verse 22. 
This passage has often been called the Johannine bolt from the sky because the language of mutual knowing seems so foreign to the synoptics, but so common in John's gospel. But the language needs to be read carefully here in Luke. It does not say that no one knows the Son except the Father. It says no one knows who the Son is except the Father. This is about the identity and vocation of the Son of God, who the Son of God is, rather than some personal knowledge God has with Jesus. Let's trace this hypothesis about the Father revealing who the Son is to other people within Luke's Gospel. It is almost certain that Luke used a copy of Mark's Gospel as the template for his own writing, meaning Luke adopted Mark's theme of the so-called Messianic secret. As you recall, the Messianic secret was the theme in Mark's Gospel where Jesus' Messianic vocation of the king of the kingdom who is rejected and killed is only partially understood by Jesus' dialogue partners. Those persons who know of Jesus as the Son of God, even if it's only a partial understanding, are, according to Luke, Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 35. And of course, Mary is disclosed this information that Jesus will be the Son of the Most High by an angel from heaven. And the angel from heaven presumably was sent by God the Father. We also see that Jesus knows that he is the Son of God in Luke chapter 3 and verse 22 at the baptism of Jesus disclosed by the voice from heaven. And lastly, we see that the inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 35, they understand that Jesus is the Son of God, and this was also disclosed by the voice from heaven. In each of these examples, it was demonstrated that Son of God was the Messianic human king, the Christ. There is no indication in any of these episodes, nor in the present passage, that the knowledge of who the Son is pertains to one who is God or a member of the Godhead. The Father and the Son work to unpack the meaning of the Son of God's vocation within Luke, being an anointed kingly figure who also is to suffer and die on behalf of the people. Our fourth point today is Son of God discussed before the authorities. I'm going to read a passage at the end of Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 66. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. That's Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. It is often assumed that Jesus admits to being a divine figure in front of the Jewish authorities, thus leading to the sentencing of his death. But is this really what Luke has described here? 
The question asked plainly in verse 67 is, if you are the Christ, tell us. The request deals with whether Jesus regards himself as the Christ, namely as the anointed king of God's kingdom. How does Jesus answer this request? He responds by saying that if he answers, they will not believe him. But Jesus also says that the Son of Man will be seated at God's right hand. So his answer to whether he is God's anointed king, the Christ, is that he is the Son of Man, who is to be enthroned next to God himself. This distinguishes Jesus from God, while certainly making a bold claim of his importance as the Son of Man, who is a human being. This is a side note, but I personally think that it's likely that Jesus' declaration of being the Son of Man from Daniel 7, who is a figure vindicated by God from among four evil beasts, would have been a veiled critique of the Jewish council who surrounded Jesus. In other words, Jesus was probably saying that he is the Son of Man, the soon-to-be-vindicated figure, while the Jewish councilmen were representing the terrible beast of Daniel 7 that surrounded the Son of Man. So it's an interesting critique that Jesus is probably saying there. That's my own personal interpretation of what Jesus is doing there with his claim to Son of Man. To this, the council all responds by saying, Are you the Son of God, then? For the council... The Christ is the same as the Son of God, since both titles are requested of Jesus, one after the other. They begin by saying, are you the Christ? And then they respond by saying, are you the Son of God? This is consistent with everything Luke and the Old Testament has explained about the Christ. Namely, the Christ is a royal figure for God's Son, God's Messiah. Jesus responds with an affirmative answer and nothing further. He does not elaborate by saying that he is supposedly Yahweh, or an angelic figure, or even the second person of the Trinity. He just simply says, yes, I am, to their question, are you the Son of God? Now, the Jewish council regards Jesus as guilty, but guilty of what? Let's see how the narrative unfolds immediately afterwards. In the next four verses, starting in Luke chapter 23 and verse 1, it says, Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. That's Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. So taking Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor, their charges are as follows. Charge number one, Jesus misleads the nation, which actually says nothing about Jesus' identity or his claims of his identity. Charge number two, Jesus forbids the paying of taxes to Caesar which is untrue. Jesus never actually did this, but it certainly sounds like a seditious claim to the Roman Empire. And the third charge is that Jesus says that he is Christ, a king. This is the only accusation that is actually true of the three. Jesus did claim to be the Christ, a king. 
but the issue would have merely been heard as a seditious claim against the Roman Empire, not as a blasphemous charge against God and God's unique status. Pilate responds and asks Jesus, not unlike the previous two questions from the Jewish council. He wants to know, are you the king of the Jews? Which is effectively what the messianic son of God was to be. Jesus agrees. But Pilate does not seem to regard Jesus as a particularly threatening or seditious person. And Pilate even calls Jesus a human being in Luke 23 and verse 4, and anthropos in Greek. In sum, the trial, if that's what we really want to call this, involving Jesus deals with whether Jesus was the Christ, whether he was the Son of God, and whether he was the King of the Jews. These are all synonymous titles. To be the Christ is to be the Son of God, which is to be the King of the Jews. None of these titles indicate that Jesus is divine or that Jesus was some sort of pre-existed being from heaven. In conclusion, we have observed that Luke's gospel, which is the longest of the four within our New Testament, understands Son of God to be a crucially important title for Jesus. Son of God is a very specific title referring to one who is God's anointed king, destined to rule the kingdom of God. This anointed figure is empowered by God's spirit and bears the authority of the anointed king. Yet, this anointed son of God is always distinguished from God, and Luke never confuses the two figures. For Luke, Jesus as son of God is the climactic David figure, a human being from David's covenanted dynasty of kings. Jesus also resembles the glorified Moses, another exalted human being. Lastly, Jesus is the second Adam, the primordial Son of God. Luke never suggests, hints, or states that Son of God is really God the Son, or a divine figure who became human. Rather, Jesus is the highly empowered human Son of God, just as the Gospel of Mark portrayed. I look forward to exploring the Gospel of Matthew and what Matthew means by Son of God in the following episodes of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. So please subscribe if you have not yet already. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. You can also check out the accompanying show notes, the Google document for a direct link to the PayPal link. You can listen to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast online, on iTunes, or on Spotify. The direct links are also in the show notes. We also have a Facebook group for discussing our podcast episodes. If you want to get involved, search for Biblical Unitarian Podcast on Facebook and send a request if you would like to join. Thank you so much for listening to us at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. As always, my name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.